Hello everyone, I'm Don Xu. And I'm Brian Ray. This is AI Podcasts in 26.1 Minutes. Where you get... Latest info on AI. Meet the most interesting practitioners of AI. People whom we like in AI. People who will answer our emails. Supplication of our future robot overlords. Why AI matters for everyone. Learn all you need to know about AI today during your drive home. It's hard to believe that this is already our eighth episode, eight straight weeks of AI podcast. We'll continue to bring great content every week for 26.1 minutes. And we really appreciate your listening. We want you to spread the word and give us five stars if you believe we deserve it on Apple or Spotify. And please notify your friends so we can continue doing this podcast. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to 26.1 podcast for AI. Today, we have Ra Shah. He's a data scientist at Data Robot, previously at Caterpillar and State Farm as data scientist and the adjunct associate professor at U of I. Welcome, Raj. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your background here? Uh, give our audience just a couple sentences on how you got in front of us today. Yeah, it might be a bit more than a few sentences, but it's been a long journey into data science where kind of started off as an academic with an interest in engineering, with an interest in doing studies around quantitative and qualitative studies, kind of brought those two together, data science popped up. Um, and so the last few years, I've been a data scientist, as you mentioned, at places like State Farm and Caterpillar, and then joined DataRobot about two years ago. Hey, welcome, Raj Donchu here. And uh, just also noticed you've had something blow up on Reddit regarding a Nature article that mentions you. Uh, care to share on that? Yeah. So, and the start of the story happened about a year ago, where I was just browsing the the data science um, the data science news, and saw this paper that was appeared in Nature that was using some deep learning techniques to help predict earthquake aftershocks. And so that was pretty interesting. And I started looking into it and I started digging into it. And once I read the article, kind of it, there were some, my kind of data science spider sense started going off that there were some things that were a little bit unusual in the article. Started digging into it, was able to get the data set that the original authors used, looked into it and found that there was a number of issues. The biggest was was that when they built their model, they actually had what we call data leakage, where there was information that leaked between their test and train set and really led to an unrealistic model. And the consequence of this unrealistic model is you really can't trust the performance that was reported in this paper. So I wrote up all my results, kind of I put a blog post out there, I shared out all the code, or making it reproducible. And it's really touched off a nerve in the data science community around issues of reproducibility, around right how kind of Google and Harvard and these places get into these journals real easily, as well as issues around data science methodology. So this is a, a big theme in our podcast lately is the idea of misuse of things particular to deep learning or you know the way that the data science is delivered. What's the root cause of this discrepancy? Is it the complexity of the of the problem or is it, you know, the lack of knowledge of how to go about it? 
you know, why, why did we get into the shape of, you know, having to argue about the details of data leakage and other things? Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, there's a lot of reasons for it. Part of it is data science as kind of a methodology and profession is really just really in its infancy if you just consider how far it's gotten in the last few years. And a lot of the practitioners come from other fields where they might have been trained in previous methods where we really haven't coalesced and started our own kind of this is how we do things from a data science perspective. And what you see, and this is what exactly what happened in the aftershocks is lots of people come in and just grab the bits and pieces of data science that they think works for them without a concern for the overall best practices or methods of data science. I just wanted to reference back to your comments about reproducibility in association with, you mentioned Harvard, um, I'm interpreting it as meaning generally with academics and their practices in terms of developing their models. And I find that interesting. I'd love for you to expand on that. We've had Rachel Tatman on who um, earned her PhD in linguistics from um, University of Washington, for example. And that is a focus for her in where she's trying to urge industry executives to adapt the uh, practices of academics. So that's why it's really interesting that you, you brought that up in relationship to academic institutions and the researchers working there. Yeah, and the reason I brought up Harvard is not that the folks there don't know how to do data science. Part of it is within Harvard, there's lots of colleges, lots of people. Some of them have a history of using data science tools and methods, understand them. Others are just dabbling and they're new to that. The other piece that's relevant with Harvard is when it comes to publications. And one of the, one of the pieces of feedback I got back from a number of people is that they feel that a lot of the publishing publications are dominated by a few of the large colleges and research institutions. And so when we find fundamental issues with research that comes out of them, that really pains those folks that are spending time trying to get into those publications and having trouble doing it because they lack the resources, lack the name credibility of that. You know, I can't help but notice, you know, you're at Data Robot now, and this is not an ad for Data Robot, but, you know, there's $200 million investment that's on the table that's just been provided to Data Robot for AutoML. And I'm just interested on your perception on research for, you know, academia versus research for things like providing AutoML to businesses. So I imagine some of that money has to go through research for data robot improvements, is there a distinction? What is your favor? Does there need to be a balance between the two? It's a great question. I think it's something that we don't really often explore is you're right. There is quite a bit of difference between academic research and the research, for example, we do internally inside data robot. So academic research, for example, right? You go out, you find some problem, you get your data sets, and then you, you run your results and then you go and you try to publish them. And publishing goes through typically the peer review process, which can take some time to do. In contrast, the research I do and I help do some of the AI research inside Data Robot, there we're much more focused on can we get results right away that give us insights on how better to develop the technology, how better to give advice to our customers. And we're not as much pained with 
having to make sure that I run this exact same thing and have the scripts ready to go so another researcher could review it. Um, it's much more practical focused rather than having to worry about, have I written up my literature review to cover all the different types of, um, all the different types of um, articles that have been discussed in the history of this topic. And your personal journey here, where you've gone through and you've worked at these organizations and you've been challenging them to educate themselves on these tools. And now you're a part of an organization that provides these tools more directly. Um, what is your, the one thing that you would want to uh, see yourself be able to do in the near term, kind of the next three, five years uh, on a personal level, whether, you know, it goes along the lines of what you do with Nature Magazine, or are you heading in a new direction altogether? Whew, that's a tough question. I'm really not that good of a planner in terms of what I want to do three to five years from now. You know, I just really enjoy giving people insights about how to use data science, how to be able to solve problems. So in the short term, I see myself kind of working in that way. Three to five years, I have no idea. There's, you know, there's going to be some new cool stuff by then that I'm sure I'll be jumping into. Is there anything that scares you regarding AI and machine learning and where it's leading? Um, is there anything that sh should be a precautionary tale to the folks out there that are the consumers of AI, which is just about everybody here today? Yeah, scare might be a little bit of a strong word, but I, there are some concerns. And the thing is, is as a field, I think there's folks, the, most of the folks that actually practice it understand a lot of these things, but there's still just a lot of hype and interest around AI and machine learning that's only surface deep. And so you get some issues that kind of keep happening. For example, kind of the over-exaggerated love of deep learning that, yes, deep learning is really great. When you're working, for example, with unstructured data, I mean, it just blows away the existing benchmarks by far. But on the other hand, we shouldn't think that deep learning is going to solve every type of data science problem, and it's not the one approach. So I'll, I'll mark you in the optimistic column for AI, and we're not going to be um, serving the robot overlords soon. Um, going back to um, what you said about trying to get more people into deploying AI and solving problems with it, um, in just general software, um, there's been a lot of folks saying that we need a general literacy for the widespread populace. Um, do you feel for AI, maybe there's uh, an opportunity to fill in people on, say, prediction and math on probability? And should that be a part of everybody's understanding since they're already interacting with AI on a daily basis? I, th I think you're, you're right on in terms of some of those concepts that we use in AI and machine learning. We need those to be kind of in the air that everybody needs to be able to understand them to some level, such as understanding what a probability is, for example. Now, on the other hand, I don't go so far as thinking that everybody, for example, needs to learn to code. I, you know, I think there's some fundamental limitations in people and why they, and that some people like to learn to code and some people absolutely detest it and we need to find other ways to be able to reach those people. So the one thing that uh, we ask on this 
podcast quite frequently is regarding how well understood mm -hmm. the business is of prediction in general and you know how those different roles you just mentioned well sometimes how well they are they understand prediction but is that conversation occurring more now than you saw it before do you think we're finally to the point of you know, people understanding what it means to have a false positive and, and things like that? Or is it still going on where there's a gap of understanding? I, I think across businesses, we've made a lot of headway in the last, let's say, three or four years than where we were. But of course, there's still areas that aren't very familiar with it. There's areas that have been using algorithms, know the idea of a false positive for the last 30 years. Um, but I think as a whole, the culture is becoming a little bit more um, understanding of a lot of these AI. And then the, for those who want to get up to speed and get to your level of understanding, or at least near it on data science in general, what is your advice to those trying to educate themselves? And I'm speaking a bit about the plethora of online courses versus sitting down and, you know, reading a book versus taking a master's degree program in data science. There's so many different avenues right now. What is your recommendation as the best practice right now for those coming of age in the, in the area? Yeah. I mean, I think it's awesome that there's so many resources available. And I think what people can do is just match their learning style, their willingness to be able to kind of pull themselves up with what works best. You know, some people can just go fine with just free online courses. Other people might need a more mentored approach. I, I mentored a place called Springboard that has kind of a mentored approach with a curriculum. Other people might want to sign up for that master's program. They want that piece of paper, but also the structure of the courses. I think they're all great ways to get there. What I always emphasize to, um, to kind of the students I work with is solving real problems. I think this is where you actually learn a lot of a lot of what you need to know. Homework problems are nice, you'll kind of understand some concepts, but going and taking a problem that no one else has done before and attacking that, that's how you're gonna really learn things um, from nuances that you wouldn't have otherwise understood or cared about in terms of how to do data prep, getting your data all together in one piece, as well as it's not the textbook data set. You might have a little set a little bit different settings when you go and run those algorithms. So this is why I kind of I encourage people to kind of do their own project. It also, if you can do something that's interesting, it's easier to talk about when you go to, out to interviews and to kind of share what you've learned. Yeah, I, I want to go back to um, what Brian was asking about how much people understand prediction. And I want to narrow that onto business leaders. And both you and Brian have a lot of experience with business leaders across different industries. Um, and the joke in business often is that a business leader, a C-level leader will come up with the foregone conclusion and then backfill and hire say a Deloitte or a Mavenwave to prove it for them. And we're talking about, uh, we should be using real math here I mean, does that phenomenon happen? Do you have to start explaining to the business leaders that's not how this process works? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a thorny situation um, that people can get stuck into. I, so if I'm reading this right, it's sometimes that there's kind of a preordained view that the executives want to and will fund a project along those lines. And for somebody that wants to just follow kind of where the data is, 
follow kind of where the data leads them, right. that can lead to some issues. And yeah, yes, I could totally see the friction there between um, <laughs> what the executives want and what you actually find out. And ideally, right, you're in an organization that is a data-driven organization that once you kind of can show your results and how it's backed up by solid data, that those executives will rethink their position. If not, you're not working in a data-driven organization and you need to make a decision for what you want to do. I mean, sometimes it's a reasonable, you know, ask, or at least it seems reasonable at first to say, I am a car manufacturer. Go make me, you, you know, you data scientists, go make me self-driving cars right now. And let's release those into the market. And the data scientists come back and they say, yeah, but your cars might kill someone. And then and they're like, oh, no. Okay, what do you mean? Tell me more. Or what do you mean there's a certain percentage that they'll kill someone? And um, it seems like that one is a top-down thinking and one is a bottom-up thinking to me. What is your thinking on the ethical boundaries that we're running into, both on, from a practitioner standpoint and from a leadership standpoint in machine learning? Yeah, this is a real fundamental question that, especially as we start thinking about ourselves as a profession for kind of data science work that we really need to tackle aggressively. Um, right now, it's just kind of on individual people kind of and kind of what their own internal radar and ethics are, right? We've seen lots of stories about this, lots of examples in the media of how kind of algorithms, um, data science techniques can be misused, how we might not take into account kind of biases there. So as a starting point, I, I mean, we could do we could do a whole 20 minutes easily on just talking about the issues around this. But I think everybody in the field as a starting point has to be cognizant of this. Now, there are tools and techniques we can use that can help us better identify these. I don't think the tools and techniques can take away the biases, but at least we do have a set of tools and techniques for starting to identify these that really all data scientists should be comfortable using. On your LinkedIn profile, I was intrigued by your introduction where um, you introduced yourself as the ask why person. Um, is that the engine that drives you to pursue uh, improving data science, ML and AI? Yeah, the ask why is really a fundamental part of my personality and I was doing it long before I was in data science or kind of even in academia. And it's just something about me is whenever I kind of force a situation, I like to think why, you know, what's going on? Why are we here? Are there other ways we could solve this problem? Um, and looking back upon it now, I can see that data science it was a very good professional match um, to my own kind of um, you know, personal, I don't know, issues or <laughs> who I am. Yeah. And I see you have a vibrant curiosity that expands past the science. And that's how I would classify it. And that's, that's why you're able to solve these problems of you know, you're able to think outside the box. But I, I know uh, you have a lot of grandmaster Kaggle winners at Data Robot and folks who are an amazing data scientist, but they may not be as creative as you are on some occasion. I mean, that's a fact. Uh, I guess we, you need a, you need all sorts to make it run. But um, how do you get from 
a very analytical data scientist mindset to someone like yourself to thinking outside the box? So I think a lot of the kind of this first generation of data scientists actually are a little bit closer to kind of my my way of thinking. And partly, I think if you kind of the formation of data science in the last you know five or so years was we had all these new tools and techniques. There were some open source tools to be able to do it, but there wasn't a formal curriculum to do it. To learn these techniques, you had to be internally motivated to go out and do it. Typically, you'd have to have some type of problem that you were solving, because otherwise, why go out and learn these tools? So I think a lot of the early data scientists actually kind of share with me this innate curiosity of understanding why things are and looking for ways to solve the problem. And it's actually something that I look for when I interview people is because, yes, you might understand how the tool works today, but we all know two years from now, we're probably going to be using a different tool set. So we need people that are willing to quickly able to learn new approaches to be able to continually improve as a data scientist. With, with your mindset that's pursuing creative solutions and you're actively seeking the most appropriate tools, does it ever feel lonely? Because most folks just kind of accept certain stereotypes or status quo. And bringing up math, data, any of the tools to deploy AI, a lot of folks will just kind of shrug it off. Mm-hmm. And so I, I see this all the time when I'm working with my kids on their math homework, right? Like, why do I care about this? What is it? It, it doesn't have any connection. The great thing about working with AI and machine learning is there's so many interesting problems that everybody can connect to in one way or not that you can apply them to. So it makes it a lot more fun and a lot more interesting to introduce these concepts than just traditional kind of, here's a normal distribution. What about, I mean, when I took computer science program in Chicago, I also had to minor in mathematics and maybe that's a good thing. And you're associated with University of Illinois too. What is the balance? What is the balance between how much boring technical stuff you need to know versus how much fun problem solving you get to do? It's a good question. And partly I think will depend on who the person is, right? If you're somebody that's much more logical, much more math driven, you're probably going to focus on that piece when you kind of get into the field. But the nice thing is, is because the field has a lots of different tools, lots of different approaches, you don't have to be kind of a math virtuoso to be able to use these tools in a very productive way. But on the other hand, if you don't have that math knowledge, there's only so far you're going to go with your understanding of the tools. And so this is why I often push people, yes, you know, you can learn a lot of the stuff without the math, but at some point, to be able to get a better understanding, you at least have to have a basic grasp of what's going on there. Does that help? Does that kind of get at what you're asking? It does. And I think that basic grasp is, it's hard for some people, I believe. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they, they struggle on, you know, the, the balance between things and, and, and some other people get it more naturally. They understand it more naturally. So I think, I think it's absolutely essential to be able to, understand the math, but it's also 
it's, it's very important. Everyone sees the bigger picture and the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. And this is where the role of things like automation come into play. When I give these talks, I often use the analogy of cameras and how cameras have changed over time. Right? When my dad had a camera when I was a kid, it was this like 35 millimeter camera and you had to understand like f-stop and exposures and there's all these different settings to be able to like take a good picture. Right Now it's just automatic when I pull out my iPhone and it even has like things like low like night mode and all of that stuff. So there are ways that we can kind of take that away so folks don't have to necessarily use the math to just be able to do basic functionality with it. Now, the folks that are designing these systems on the back end, yeah, they're going to have to know the math. In order to stay within our 26.1 minutes, we better wrap this one up. So Raj, any good tips on where we can find you online? No, uh, thank you so much for, ha for having me on. I've really enjoyed this opportunity to talk about these topics. If folks want to be able to follow me, I'm on LinkedIn, or otherwise you can follow me on Twitter at Raj CS and then the number four. Thank you. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining us on AI Podcast. You can reach us at ai-podcast.com or find us on Spotify or iTunes. Thank you again, and we'll see you soon.